Good morning to you. If I haven't greeted you uh, already, wonderful to see you all. Um, you can go ahead and open your Bible apps to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, or if you don't have a Bible, we have a few Bibles at the back. Uh, you can just pop your hands up. We'll get one into your hands. Anyone here want a Bible? It's really important that you see God's Word for yourself and uh, not take my word for it. If you don't have a Bible at all, you're most welcome to have that one. Take it home as long as you... I'm sorry, what? Read it. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. Great. So we continue uh, um, in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at, continuing to look at what it means to be humble, obviously for your benefit only. Um, there was a little joke. <clears throat> but what we are going to see in our next section in Philippians 2 is that great humility involves great sacrifice. Great humility involves great sacrifice. To be truly humble means it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us our resources. It's going to cost us our will, our desires even. And so, so here's what I did. I said, if, if that is true, if, if it's true that great humility involves great sacrifice, I asked Google for a list of the humblest people in world history uh, to see if it is true. Now, I came upon one particular website, and I'm not, they gave me a kind of a top 10. I won't go through everyone, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few. First one is Barack Obama, uh, and the reason uh, is he served food for the homeless during Thanksgiving in 2015. He and the entire first family served dinner to the local homeless population, so they sacrificed their home, they sacrificed time as a family, and, and went to go feed the, the local homeless population, which was great. Uh, number two is Joyce Banda. I think she's from Malawi. Uh, she sold off the presidential jet and the fleet of 60 Mercedes limousines to help her country's failing economy. Uh, she's Southern Africa's first and only female president, and I just think, wow, that, that's good on her. I'd love to know what the previous president did with 60 Mercedes limousines, but anyway. Number three is Mark Rutt. Uh, this is the Dutch Prime Minister. He goes to the office every day on a bicycle, so he's given up the luxury of a chauffeured car. Um, and he also, once a week, teaches in a school. So he gives up his time to go teach in a school, which I think is wonderful. Number four is this person. <laughs> Google doesn't lie. I'm, you know, just, kidding. just kidding. I couldn't help myself. Uh. Right, here we go. So it was an interesting list of, of varying degrees of sacrifice. Um, interesting enough, the website only uh, registered one religious leader in Mahatma Gandhi. I didn't think Jesus would make the list because, you know, it's a secular thing. Um, but I was surprised that Mother Teresa at least didn't make it. But uh, what I want us to do this morning is not look to world leaders as our example, as our model of humility, but I want us to look to Jesus, uh, especially in this text today, we're going to see Jesus as our supreme model of humility. So, why don't you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5, I'll do a little bit of a recap from last week, and then we'll, we'll get going. So Paul writes and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's where we finished off last week. And uh, we, we were looking at, at increasing our understanding of what humility actually is. And remember we said that if we want to overcome just about any relationship issue, we need to be humble. And we said that because 
Lurking underneath most relationship issues or most relationship conflict is the, the issue of pride. Pride can be both the instigator of conflict and both the inhibitor of reconciliation. And so this mindset that Paul is talking about here, if you see in verses 3 and 4 from last week, means doing nothing out of selfish ambition, doing nothing for vainglory, but in humility, he says, consider others as more important than ourselves, which also includes paying attention to the interests of others and not just our own. And the great news about verse 5 there is that it's telling us that we can do this. That we can lay hold of this by being in Jesus. Remember, for those of you who are visual learners, we had the two cups. And by faith in Jesus, we are transferred out of our sinful, selfish selves into Jesus. And these principles epitomize who Jesus is. That he is the epitome of humility. And now Paul is going to show us that. But just as we, as we continue reading, note that great Humility involves great sacrifice. And so note where Jesus began and the cost that he went through and ultimately what it resulted in for him. So have a look at verse six. He says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what we're gonna see this morning. Jesus as our supreme sacrificial example of humility. Number one, we're gonna see he didn't play the, the God card. Number two, he came to serve and not be served. And then we'll finish off by looking at um, he was sacrificially obedient. So here we go. Um, as our example of supreme humility, number one, Jesus didn't play the God card. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, let me illustrate it like this. I don't know if you've heard about uh, the story of an arrogant and irritated passenger who was put in his place by a very wise ticket agent. Um, a flight was unexpectedly canceled in the Denver airport, uh, and all the passengers rushed off to the next ticket booth to, to buy the next available ticket for the next available uh, flight. And so obviously everyone is irritated. Everyone is put out by this um, but one very angry man pushed his way to the front of the line, got to the ticket lady and said, I demand a ticket now and it must be first class. The ticket lady replied, I'm sorry, sir. Um, I'd be happy to try to help you, but I've got to try and help all of these folks first, pointing to you know, the line of disgruntled uh, passengers. And then she said, I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll be able to work something out. The passenger became very angry and said with a loud enough voice for everyone to hear, do you have any idea who I am? The ticket lady, obviously very experienced in things like this, very coolly and calmly picked up the public address microphone and said, attention all passengers, we have someone here who has no idea who he is. If you can help him find his attendee, that would be most appreciated. <laughs> With the entire line of passengers, you can imagine, erupting into laughter and a very embarrassed man had to join the back of the line. Now, if anyone deserved to play that card, it would be Jesus, right? Jesus, the Son of, a, Son of God, God Himself. But look at what He does. Look at verse 6. It says, Who though He was in the form of God, look at this, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now some argue, well, he didn't play the God God because he wasn't God. Many people believe that Jesus never existed, which is just crazy talk because there's more evidence that Jesus existed than Julius Caesar. Other people simply believe that, no, 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 Jesus, he existed, but he was just a, he was just a person. He was just a good person. He was, he was a really good teacher that everyone is to, you know, kind of follow his example. But notice what Paul is saying here. Jesus is in the form of God and therefore equal with God. Okay, so here comes the nerdy Greek part, but hopefully it'll make sense. You know, I remember that most of the New Testament was written in ancient Greek. And there are two words that could be used for the word form here. The first word is morphe, uh, which refers to the essential nature of something. And, and that's what the word means here. Uh, it's, it refers to, to the essence of someone or their, their essential being or their nature. And so what he's saying is that Jesus in his essential nature is God or equal to God in his essence. This is how we attempt to, to try and explain the, the mind-bending truth of our Trinitarian God. We have one God made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are of the same essence, who are of the same nature, who are of the same morphe. That's why we have one God. And so morphe or essential nature never changes. Jesus is, uh, is of God and, and, and never changed. The other Greek word, though, for form is the word schema, which refers to the, the frame or the, uh, the frame that the essence takes place in or, or the, the frame around the nature. Now, this can change, and we'll see that a little bit later. For example, my morphe or my essence is, is masculine. I was born male, and I will die male. Somehow that's become a controversial statement in our day and age, but let's just keep going. And my schema, though, on the other hand, my schema has changed. You know, I was born a baby, then grew and grew, and, and became a skinny, pimply teenager, uh, and continued to grow into young adulthood, into the form that you have now before you that can change very quickly depending on how much chocolate cake I eat. And so Jesus, in his very core essence, is God and is therefore equal with God. Jesus is God and has always been God for all eternity. That means before he took on human flesh, he enjoyed incomparable, glorious fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then at some point, God decided to make creation. And so Jesus himself was there from the very beginning. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 like this, he said, that all things were made by him, through him, and for him, and in all things, and, and all things hold together in him, so that he might be preeminent over everything. And so what that means is Jesus as God is creator and sustainer and ruler of all things. There is nothing bigger or more powerful or more glorious than him. He is completely sovereign over all things. He is large and in charge over all things. You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? I mean that if he pushes to the front of the line, no one's going to stop him. In fact, they'll just say, you go straight on board, so first class all the way, because he is God. But would he do that? Look at what Paul said he did when he came. He said he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
meaning he did not use it to his advantage. Uh, it can also mean to seize something, to, to grab hold of something. I'm sure we've all seen two toddlers playing and one toddler grabs the toy from the, others and, uh, the other one and says, mine, and they hold on to it for dear life. This is mine, this is now for my enjoyment. I'm gonna take advantage of this for my enjoyment. There's an amazing story in John 6 where Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And afterwards, John says, the crowd wanted to seize Jesus and make him king. But Jesus perceives this and he, he kind of sneaks off silently into the mountains. And we think, well, come on, Jesus. You, you, just, you should have taken advantage of that. You should have seized that. You should have grabbed hold of that moment. I mean, you, you just showed off the fact that you are God, and so you, you, you should have taken hold of that because you could have had a kingdom. You could have taken out Roman rule and reestablished the nation of Israel. I mean, right off the bat, you could have had 5,000 people willing to serve you. But he doesn't because he was busy establishing a heavenly kingdom. Going back to last week, Jesus did nothing out of selfish ambition or vainglory but rather did everything according to the will of his Father. He never played the God card. He came to do the will of his Father. He willingly let go of his glorious position in glory to take on flesh. So, how is this an example to us exactly? Well, think about what it means to be a Christian for a second. As believers, we are forgiven of all of our sins, the Bible describes us as justified, completely forgiven, righteous before God's eyes. We'll never be condemned for our sin because Jesus took it all upon himself. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, which means our bodies are now the temple of God. He is the seal of our salvation. As believers, we have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, according to Ephesians 1.3. God has promised to, to complete the work that he has started in us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Think about that. God Almighty, the creator of all things, has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He says we don't have to worry because he knows all of our needs. And the list can go on and on and on. There is a position of privilege. It's a glorious position to be in and one that we will be in for all eternity. And now if Jesus is our supreme model of humility, well then what, what do we do with that? Do we hold on to it? Do we allow it to breed contempt and pride in us towards unbelievers? Well, you know, at least I know who I am. At least I know what I believe. At least I know I've got my life sorted. At least I know where I'm going. That's what we call playing the Christian card. We kind of grab hold of it like, like a toddler. And we say, no, this is mine. This is mine for me to enjoy. At least my life is sorted. No, we take the same attitude of Jesus and we do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather we make it our aim to make Jesus known. The good news of who Jesus is, the good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, sunrise, that, that's way, way too good to keep to ourselves. One scholar said it like this, he says, sure, we see ourselves as called and set apart from the world and lofty and high and lifted up in a, in a spiritual sense. He says, but 
but we have to hold that lightly for the sake of the needs of others. Anyone who stoops begins with that kind of, of attitude. I will not clutch my privileges, possessions, rights, blessings, no matter what my elevated position might be. And so we don't play the Christian card because our Lord and Savior never played it himself. So that is the first step down. Jesus didn't hold on to his high, lofty position in glory, but came down to earth to sin, to a world full of sinners. And then what did he do? The next way Jesus models humility for us is number two, Jesus came to serve and not be served. And so this is directly in contrast to, to playing the God card. The God card says, hey, listen up everybody, sovereign ruler of the universe here, let me lay it down for you how I want you to live for me, how I want you to serve me, how I want you to try your best to live a holy life that matches my standards. You have to stop sinning even though you were born with a sinful nature, so all the best with that one. And then you have to start living according to all of these holy standards in order to appease me. And then poof, he, you know, he kind of just disappears and leaves us. That's playing the God card. I tell you what, we, we'd spend the rest of our days panicking as if to know if, if our effort is good enough. Are we really appeasing him? And the bad news, it's not. That's what the old covenant proved. No one can keep God's holy law perfect. So Jesus doesn't play the God card, but rather he comes to do what we could never do and at the same time gives us an example to live by. Have a look at verse six again. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but look at this, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, he didn't play the God card because in contrast, he emptied himself. By the way, that phrase has caused so much debate in nerdy theological world over the centuries. I mean, I've tried reading these thick dissertations that apparently were in English but got horribly confused. But unfortunately, a lot of false doctrine and a lot of false theories have come out about Jesus regarding this. You know, does it mean that Jesus emptied himself of, of all of his divinity? Uh, did he empty himself of all of his attributes like his power? Did he just solely become a man? And if so, what are the repercussions of that on us? And, and on and on these debates go. But now call me simple, but look at the structure of the sentence. He emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant and secondly, being born in the likeness of men. You see that? The emptying wasn't an emptying of subtraction, but an emptying of addition. Keith Krell sums it up like this. He says, Jesus came down from heaven to earth in the greatest stoop of all time. Instead of climbing the ladder, Jesus stepped down one rung at a time. He says, we can be sure of one thing. This phrase doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of any of his divine attributes, because that would be emptying by subtraction. He goes on, he says, if Jesus did such a thing for even one moment, he would cease to be God. Jesus, being God, emptied himself by adding humanity. The point that, he's, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that Christ Jesus practiced self-denial and self-sacrifice for our sake and became God in a bod. Now some of you might be thinking, oh wait a minute Jason, 
If you read the Gospels, there are times where it certainly seemed like Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes. For instance, he, he said that no one knows, including himself, when he would return. Only the Father knew that. And then the obvious one is his omnipresence. I mean, he was stuck in a body. He had to walk everywhere. He, he got tired. He had to rest. He, he had to eat. Okay, let me explain it like this. But, but remember, every illustration is limited, but you'll kind of get the idea. I remember watching a tennis, ma a tennis match a couple of years ago, and uh, Roger Federer uh, was playing some poor opponent. Uh, he had absolutely no chance against Roger and was being absolutely slaughtered. And then uh, eventually he turns to a young boy in the crowd and he hands him his racket and says, here, you, you try. And uh, instead of telling you what happened, I actually managed to find the clip on YouTube and so we'll, we'll put it on screen for you. Uh-oh, the challenge here for Roger. Grigor will pass the baton here to a, a young guy here. Looks like he's ready to go. Oh, look at this. Wow, right. in the dial for him. Rogers freaked out. <laughs> and he hit the pass. Yeah. Oh. Lobs him. That's He's got it. it. <laughs> now, in all that time, think about it, did Roger lose his power? Did he lose his amazing ability and his incredible skill? No. He practiced self-denial and he served the situation, no pun intended. But he, he served the crowd by, by giving them entertainment. He served this young boy by, by giving him a moment that he will treasure forever. He served his opponent by giving him a break before he just you know, finished him off a bit later on. And so in the same way, listen, in the same way we've got the sovereign Ruler of the universe, the Lord Jesus, who is capable of doing whatever he wants to do, but he limited the independent use of certain attributes and prerogatives while on earth. He himself practiced self-denial to provide an example for us in how to live. Notice that word form in verse seven. It's the same word that we saw in verse six referring to this essential nature. Jesus took on the essential nature of a servant, literally a slave. It wasn't just a costume. It wasn't just something. It wasn't just some facade. Literally, he, in his very essence, while he was here on earth, it was that of a slave. That was his nature. And it was included. It was added to his divine nature. The Gospel of Matthew tells of this incident when two of Jesus' disciples come and, and, the, and they ask him if they can sit on either side of Jesus when he becomes king, when he's ruling as king. You see, at that stage, they still thought Jesus was uh, gonna overthrow Roman rule and Roman government and reestablish the nation of Israel and reestablish its geographical borders and then literally sit as a physical king, a political king. And so these two disciples were wanting to be in positions of authority. They wanted to be in positions of political authority. And then what Jesus does is he contrasts his philosophy of leadership with the world's view of leadership. Have a look at this, Matthew 20. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's other nations, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, they, they, they have this dominion, oppressive way of, of leadership. 
He goes on and says, it shall not be so among you. As a disciple, as a Christian, you want to lead? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Here comes the example. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you want to be great, and if you, you, you want to be great, you want to do great things, you want to be a great leader, Jesus is saying you can do that, right? Verse not, not saying that we can't. You know, so you, you want to you, you wanna be a better accountant, you want to be a better doctor, you want to be a better lawyer, you want to be a better father, you want to be a better mother, you want to be a great leader, then equip yourself, go for it, equip yourself to be better, but be low in your mind, but empty yourself of vain glory, and take on the very nature of a servant, like we saw last week. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And so we think, well, how do we do that? We follow Jesus' example and we serve them. How do you wanna be a great dad? How do you wanna be a great mother? You serve your family. How do you wanna be a great leader in your company? You serve your colleagues, you serve your company. We take the mindset of a servant like our, Jesus, our Lord, Lord and Savior Jesus did. Okay. So are we tracking with this glorious descent into humility here? Jesus was in glory for all eternity, equal with God, but he didn't count equality with God, he didn't play the God card, but rather he became God in a bod and he came to serve us. This is why we said at the beginning that great humility requires great sacrifice. And now we reach the pinnacle of Jesus' example of humility. Last point, look at this, Jesus was sacrificially obedient. Paul says it like this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if being human wasn't humbling enough. Jesus, our creator, takes the form of created man. He becomes like his creation, yet without sin. He practices self-denial, puts away certain of his divine attributes and prerogatives to come and be with us as one of us. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul says, Jesus gave up his riches and became poor for our sake so that we might become rich through his poverty. It's got nothing to do with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but all to do with our reconciliation with our heavenly Father. Jesus left glory, perfect glory, no sin, no pain, pure joy, in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, comes down to a world full of sin, takes on that sin himself, so that you and I one day might be in that glory. But look at how that sacrifice gets even costlier. Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Think about it, the Son of God who has known nothing but eternal life, he never had a beginning, he never had an end, he, he, he always was just simply is, he, he's the great I am. Now he tastes death. Not just any death, the most humiliating death at the known time. Notice the phrase, even death on a cross. 
Paul is calling special attention to this degrading way of dying. And it was completely degrading because you would be stripped completely naked, fully exposed to everyone to be mocked. It was, it was reserved for the slaves and, and the worst of all criminals. And so there was this identity attached to it. People didn't need to know why you were on the cross. They just know, hey, if you're on the cross, you either have to be a slave or you have to be a really, really bad criminal, like a thief of some sort or a murderer or an insurrectionist. And then on top of all of that, it was excruciatingly painful. Nails hammered through your hands. Nails hammered through your feet. But before that, you would be lashed with whips that were designed to rip out as much flesh as possible. And it was a slow death. Death on the cross was by suffocation, loss of bodily fluids, and multiple organ failure. I'll spare us more detail. So when we understand it like that, when we have this very disturbing picture in our minds, suddenly that word obedience in this verse begins to stand out. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which is crazy because at any moment, Jesus could have stopped this, right? I mean, he's the son of God. Remember when he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and and Peter cuts off one of the guy's ears and Jesus pops it back on and he says, wait a minute, don't you think that in this very moment I could call down 12 legions of angels? It's a little bit of overkill because that equates to 72,000 super beings. One angel would have sufficed, or if you're into Avengers, one Thanos clicked by Jesus and they're gone, they're toast. But instead he was obedient. He was obedient to the plan. Just prior to his arrest, he was sweating blood in his prayer to the Father, anticipating not just the pain that he was gonna go through, but that he would be separated from his heavenly father for the very first time in all eternity because he's gonna take on all of our sin. Do you remember what he prayed? He said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it's because of that obedience, that obedience, you and I are sitting here today. It's the only reason You and I are sitting here today declared justified and forgiven before God Almighty. That's the only reason why and why millions and millions of Christians all around the world are gathering in this moment to worship Him because our Lord and our Savior was sacrificially obedient. So yes, great humility involves great sacrifice, but sandwiched in between our humility or Jesus' humility and sacrifice is the word obedience. Obedience to God's will. Jesus' obedience to his Father's will becomes a pattern or an example for us to follow. And it's because of the cross of Christ that by faith in Jesus, we are enabled to take up our own cross, our own cross of self-denial. And we can come before our Father and go, nevertheless, not my will, not my desires, not my goal in life, but yours, your will be done. But does it work? 
Does it work? Because yes, through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his humble sacrifice, we've received salvation. But if we start doing the same thing, like doing nothing out of selfish ambition, paying attention to other people's interests and, and carrying our cross of self-denial, will it work in this 21st century context? Some of you came up to me after last week's sermon and you're saying, yeah, and you, know, and you sent me some messages during the week and saying, yeah, I get the whole humble thing, but will it work in my context? We live in such a competitive world where, where humility is not championed, at least not to the same degree as the Bible speaks about it. Will we become roadkill? Will people just walk all over us? Well, let's finish off by looking at what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross. Verse nine says, therefore, because of his obedience, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because of his sacrificial obedience to humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, his Father has highly exalted him. That means Jesus is alive and he's seated next to the right hand of his Father and he's reigning and he's ruling and he will do so for all eternity. And one day when he returns, everyone will know and everyone will confess. Oh, he, he really is Lord. He really is Lord of all. So here's what we need to realize. We cannot take God out of the picture in our humility. If you're worried, w will it work? If I, if I follow Jesus' example, and if, if I go into my company tomorrow and, I, and I, I take the mindset of a servant, will it work? We cannot take God out of the picture of our humility because He will do the exalting. It gets messy and it gets complicated when we take His role and we try and exalt ourselves, when we try and lift ourselves up. So the question we need to ask ourselves, Sunrise, is where do we need to humble ourselves? What area of our lives are we busy exalting ourselves, lifting ourselves up, making much of ourselves? Look at this amazing promise and then I'm done. 1 Peter 5, verses 67. Read this verse with me and notice what is our responsibility and what is God's. Verse six, humble yourselves. Sunrise, humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, who? He may exalt you. Well, how do we do that, Jason? How do, we, how do we humble ourselves so that God will do this at some point? He tells us by casting, casting all your anxieties on Him. If you're worried, it, will the servant mindset, will the servant attitude work in my, in my context, in my, in my workplace? Will it work in my marriage? Will it work in my parenting? Will it work with my friends? Bring it all before him. Cast all your anxieties on him. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's got time and he's got ability. You bring it to him. He 
It says, because he cares for you. How do we know it'll work? Because he cares for you. How do we know that at some proper time he will exalt us, he will lift us if we humble ourselves before him because he loves you? How do we know that he loves us? Because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. So that through faith in him, we can follow his example and be humble and know that our heavenly father will also exalt us and lift us up.